Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. They shall run and not grow weary. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer before we study the word this evening. Make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening as part of the body of Christ to study your word, that we might learn the mind of Christ, and that we might understand that in this church age we are part of a body of believers, an invisible body that make up the body of Christ, and that as part of that body of Christ, we have responsibilities not only toward you, but also toward one another, that there is a a code of conduct that is to characterize the way believers Uh, treat one another the way we are to love one another, and that these are spelled out very clearly in the Scriptures, and that we are to encourage and strengthen and help and teach and uh, admonish one another, forgive one another. And, Father, we can only fulfill these mandates when we are submitted to your Word and walking by the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would help us to put these things into practice as we study them and as we study the closing parts of this study tonight, we pray that we might uh, see how these principles apply in our own thinking, our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last time, as we're going through the doctrine of one another coming out of our study of Hebrews, we're down to, got down to uh, points 18 and 19. Those two points really came out of the same context in James chapter 5. So the 18th point was to confess to one another. And this means in a context, though, does not mean just randomly admission of sins to one another, but sins that are related to the problem at hand. The problem at hand in James 5 had to do with uh, weakness or weariness, failure to persevere in the spiritual life, and in that case, that would involve a failure to handle one of the tests of faith as identified in the first chapter of James, that we are to count it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith or the doctrine in our soul produces endurance. So when we, when we fail and we are being run over, in our Christian life, and we become uh, roadkill on the uh, road of our spiritual life, then we have to 
call for prayer from stronger believers, and that's the focus of that passage, and part of that is confessing uh, our sins to one another within that context and within that context of privacy. Also, to pray for one another, and that is, as I said, uh, the topic of every single verse from James, about James 5.13 all the way down to uh, the end of the chapter. So in full, James 5.16 said to confess uh, your trespasses to one another and to pray for one another that you may be healed, and that has to do with a spiritual uh, revival of strength, not a physical healing, as we saw, that the, the idea of physical healing or physical sickness doesn't fit the context, either the immediate context of James 5, the broader context of James, the message of the epistle of James itself, and the context of James 5 should focus on the idea of weariness in the spiritual uh, struggle, spiritual advance. And the conclusion of that section from 13 to 16 is the principle that the prayer of a righteous man, indicating here not positional righteousness, which comes in justification, but experiential righteousness, which means maturity. That fits with the idea of, I, I mentioned last time that uh, we shouldn't be understanding elders in the earlier verse, let them call for the elders to pray as an office in the church, but as presbyteroi means literally the older ones, and is also a word just to be used for mature believers. So it is calling upon mature believers uh, to be in prayer. So we are to pray uh, for, uh, pray for one another. And then we came to our 20th point, which is that we are to be hospitable to one another. Hospitality is part of the role of the believer toward other believers. And that can be manifested in a lot of different ways. It can be manifested in a, in a church environment. And as we have here at West Houston Bible Church from almost the inception, there has been a, an openness to people. They see that. They come in. They, when we first moved into this building and we had a kitchen and there was coffee and cookies and baked items, whatever, people just were really open, and it was hard, still is, to get everybody out of the kitchen and to get them in here in here for Bible class because there's just that, that openness. And when new people come, uh, I've been very pleased to see how people will welcome them and introduce themselves, and it's not the kind of uh, uh, formulaic, formal, artificial uh, thing that you have in a lot of churches, what everybody who's a member of this church, please stand up. That's a tricky one. They don't have the visitors raise their hand. It's everybody who's a member of the church, stand up. Now turn around and find the person sitting down and go over and introduce yourself and give them a hug and tell them you love them. And, and it's superficial. And it, people just, it has to flow out of a person's own spiritual life and their desire to get to know people. And it has a genuineness to it that... Uh, that comes across. And that's one way of being hospitable. Another way to be hospitable is just in terms of your own, uh, your own home, welcoming people, helping people, providing food for people who are in need. All of these kinds of things uh, come across. Now, one of the key verses on this is found in 1 Peter 4.9. Just a simple command that we're to be hospitable to one another 
without grumbling. So you're not to complain about it, not to gripe, oh, here's another missionary coming in that we have to take care of, but that there's a willingness to share what God has given us because ultimately it came from God. It didn't come from simply my hard work. Everything comes from the Lord, and so I should be willing to help share um, that the the bounty that God has given me with others. So we're to be hospitable to one another. Now, this is a really interesting word. It is a compound word, and I don't, let me see if I, I don't think I put it in here. It is philo-xenos. You could transliterate it, P-H-I-L-O, xenos, Z-E-N-O-S. You can break that down etymologically from the phila from philos, meaning love, and xenos from stranger or foreigner. Uh, xenophobia is a fear of foreigners or fear of strangers. So uh, philoxenos means literally a lover of strangers. And it's interesting that Gentiles were described as xenoi, strangers. In the scriptures, we were strangers to the covenants of Israel. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 13 and following, talk about the fact that Jews were not, were, were, I mean, uh, Gentiles were separated from the covenants of, of the Jews. They were strangers to the uh, covenants of God. So they were xenoi. And so there's one sense in which philoxenos would ha- refer to Jewish believers. And see, it's interesting. These are found in 1 Peter and also in Hebrews. Now, the cross-references I have up there, 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, have to do, 1 Timothy 3.2 has to do with the qualifications uh, of a pastor, as does Titus 1.8. And so a pastor is to be that way, but so is every believer. There's a list of qualifications there for bishops and deacons and Timothy and elders and, and uh, deacons and Titus. And if you do a word say, some people read that and they go, oh, you just have to be, do, you have to be, have all these quali- qualifications to be a pastor. But every one of those qualifications are expected of every believer. It's not unique to being a pastor or a leader in the church. Every one of those char- character qualities is to be expected and is demanded of every single believer. As, but that comes with maturity, and so that's why they're isolated there. So you have those two references in terms of the qualifications of a of a pastor. But in First Peter four nine and Hebrews, we have two specific epistles that are written to Jewish believers, to a Jewish audience. Uh, Peter is written to the 12 tribes scattered, and Hebrews is written to Jewish believers who are threatening to throw away their Christianity and go back into Judaism. And so this word is used there. It has this nuance of, of not being isolated as a Jew, but also welcome, breaking down those barriers and welcoming the Gentiles as part of the body, uh, body of Christ. It's a quality that is expected of every single believer. It is also uh, emphasized in Romans 12, which we'll look at in just a minute, uh, in the context there of describing the qualities of the Christian life. So this is a, a very important 
quality for every believer is to have this level of hospitality. And really all it is is a, a graciousness and generosity and openness to strangers. It does not necessarily mean that you always have to invite the traveling missionary or speaker or whoever to stay at your house or when we have a Chafer conference to and have students or pastors stay with you. Not everybody has a situation when they, where they can uh, open their home and make it available. Some do, but there are other ways in which we can be, be hospitable and show hospitality to people in a very a kind and gracious way, and that is how it is to be. Uh, it is to be expressed. In Hebrews chapter thirteen, we have the second key passage on this. Uh, we read, "Let notice the context. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers." And the word there for "do, do not forget" is a Greek word. Uh, for uh, uh, p uh, what is it pilotonomai, and it means to not forget or to be neglectful, and it's again an imperative in the second person, in the second person plural. So it is a broad-based command addressed to every believer, and the idea there of entertaining strangers again is the word philosonos. Uh, uh, which means to be hospitable. So it should be translated, do not forget to be hospitable, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, that is an interesting passage, and every now and then you have somebody quote the old King James, you, you, some entertained angels underwear, uh, unawares. But what's the, what does that refer to? What does that refer? That refers back to Genesis. So let's turn back into Genesis and take a look at these two examples, because this is just referring to a historical incident. It is not referring to a normal pattern that when some stranger comes and knocks on your door, you better let him in your house and give him a cup of coffee because he just might be an angel. I've heard a sermon on that. Can you imagine that? How dangerous that would be to just, oh, well, this might be an angel, so I better not run the risk. Back in Genesis chapter 18, we had two incidents of this in 18 and 19. In Genesis chapter 18, we have uh, the Lord coming to physically visit Abraham uh, down near Hebron near the oak trees of Mamre, that is in the area of modern Hebron, which is in the Palestinian-controlled territory. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees, or the oak trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. So this is showing the type of... of um, hospitality that was common in Abraham's day. Now, we wouldn't uh, handle it quite the same way. There's no command as to how you're to do this, but that was the way they did it in the ancient Near East. He ran, bowed himself to the ground, said, My Lord, I found favor in your sight. Abraham knew that it was the Lord before them, him, that this was a theophany. 
And he said, don't pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh your heart. So he's very concerned about their their physical needs and taking care of them. He's very generous. He's providing food and shelter. And then he goes out to the herd. He kills uh, a tender, good calf. In other words, he finds the best steaks in the freezer and thaws them out in order to provide a good meal for his guests. And so we see this wonderful picture of hospitality there. And then we come to discover that uh, one is the Lord, uh, uh, Theophany, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appearing to Abraham, and the other two are angels. And when you go down to the next chapter in the first verse, uh, Genesis 19.1, we read, Then the two angels came to Sodom. Prior to this, they're just referred to as the two men, so they had all of the appearance. They dressed like men, looked like men, and for all practical purposes, as far as Abraham was concerned, they were men, but he did not, he did not know that they were angels, and so they were uh, in disguise, as it were. So that's the reference in Hebrews 13.1 that Abraham provides this example for us of hospitality. And so that's just simply an illusion, an illustration of, of the principle of hospitality from the life of Abraham. But then we have another passage to look at, and that's in Romans chapter 12. So turn with me in your Bible back to the New Testament, to the 12th chapter of Romans. Now this whole section of Romans, as we've seen, is just loaded with with application-type passages, but it all flows out of a basic command to love one another. And we see that reiterated in Romans 12.9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Your, your topical sentence is to let love be without hypocrisy. So then what the Apostle Paul is doing is explaining the various characteristics and illustrating various ways in which we show love for one another. One would be to abhor what is evil, to, uh, and that's a very strong word, to abhor. We are not going to allow that. It is not good for others. And so some may call us self-righteous if we take a certain moral stand, but it is because we have a broader picture of what the issues are in life. Cling to what is good. So there is a, you have the dual command there. You're going to completely reject the evil, that which is uh, anti-God, anti-righteousness, anti-biblical, and you're going to accept that which is inherently good. Again, I believe these are general overriding principles. Then in verse 10, we have a one another, which we've already studied, be kindly affection or be kind to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. So there is this uh, concern for other believers and with a degree of uh, sensitivity to their strengths and their weaknesses. That will be developed, as we'll see, in the 14th chapter, which comes up in another couple of points. So this sets the opening opening stage. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. 
And then verse 11 goes on to read, Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in uh, testing, enduring in testing, tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Same principle we see or we saw the last time in James chapter 5. Prayer is to be a standard characteristic in the believer's life. Verse 13, then, distributing to the needs of saints. This is providing food and finances for those who are in need, who cannot work to eat. One of those key passages every parent ought to drill into their children so they'll be, grow up to be good capitalists is in Second uh, Thessalonians that those who don't work don't eat. So, But there are those who can't work. And so they are dealt with in generosity and in grace, and there's a distribution to the needs of the saints given to, given to hospitality. And so once again, we have this same word. Hospitality here is related to just providing for the physical needs of those who are unable to provide for themselves, whether they're older, whether they're ill, whether there are other circumstances in life that make it unable for them to work and provide for themselves, so those who can uh, help them out out of their understanding of God's grace, that we treat people always on the basis of God's grace, not on the basis of works, not on the basis of people uh, having to meet a certain standard before we are good or kind or generous to them and the demonstration of hospitality. So um, Paul is going to go on in Romans 13 to ex- give some more examples of what love looks like, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, uh, being of the same mind toward one another. That was another one we looked at early on in the study, having the same mentality because it's based on Bible doctrine, and then uh, it's based on humility. And so that covers chapter 12. Then another example of humility is orientation to authority. Without orientation to authority, there is no success in life. And we live in a world today when people are becoming, are are more and more arrogant and express it in uh, more and more extreme ways. And without drawing necessarily judgments on political positions taken, but we've seen this radical discord in this nation that's increased over the last 10 years because of uh, arrogant polarity that's taken, taking place on, on both sides. Each president comes in. I can remember that uh, this was stated by the Republicans in early 2000 when George Bush was running that, uh, you know, there's just too much discord and we need to uh, bring people together. And so the Republicans came in and, and it just seemed like the breach got wider. And then you get into uh, the current situation. You watch these town hall meetings and the breach is even greater. The country is just polarizing. And I believe it's ultimately due to the breakdown of worldview. You have people who are still influenced by a biblical worldview whether they're Christians or not is not the not necessarily the issue because they still have a sense of those establishment truths and establishment principles, and then there are many others who don't, and that's what causes that that breach and causes the uh, 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 the sides to polarize against one another, 
And arrogance breeds in that kind of environment, and people stop thinking, and they just start emoting, and it never seems to recover from that. So humility is foundational in relation to authority, and that is the topic of of the 13th chapter. And then he comes to the towards the end in that argument, talking about loving one another in verse 8, chapter 13, verse 8, uh, giving illustrations of what that looks like, and then in verses 11 to 14, describing all of these characteristics as walking uh, in the day, walking in the light, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the last verse in Romans Romans 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now that verse is addressed to believers. And that putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is the is a process. That is the process of spiritual growth. And we're putting on, like you put on a garment, you're putting on the character of Christ, and that comes because you walk by the Spirit. The Spirit produces in you the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, against which there is no law. All of that comes as a result of walking by means of the Spirit, and it makes no provision for the flesh. Now, the interesting thing about that verse is back in the early church, there was a a young man who had gone through a lot of soul-searching, and he had gone through all these different religions. He had tried out Manichaeism for a while, which was sort of a Persian dualistic mystical religion, and then he tried out Neoplatonism, and he was fallen in love with philosophy. He had uh, been living with a woman for about 13 years, and had a child out of wedlock. His mother was a Christian, and so those Christian values had also created by this time a certain uh, guilty conscience, and he was in real torment, and he was in in a city in, in Italy where he had come to hear one of the uh, great preachers of that time, a man by the name of Ambrose, and he had heard him preach, and he was uh, under conviction by the Holy Spirit, so he's sitting outside in a garden, And he says that he heard a voice in his head that said, take up and read. So he picked up his Bible and he read Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And he trusted Christ as his Savior and was saved. That man's name was Augustine. And he was one of the most influential, and I wouldn't always agree with him, mostly wouldn't, but one of the most influential figures in church history. And I've often thought I would love to preach a series of sermons on verses God used to bring people to salvation, and those verses had nothing to do with salvation. (laughs) They're just understood out of context. How many people have been saved because somebody with Campus Crusade came up and said, you need to invite Jesus into your heart? Well, that's not what that verse says, and that's not what Revelation 3.20 means, but there's all kinds of people who have taken that to be a synonym for believing in Jesus, and I think they're saved. I have no doubt in my mind that they're saved. They, 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 you don't have to be a theologian to say it just the right way to get saved because what's happening in their soul is they're trusting in Christ for salvation. They're just having somebody use a wrong verse and take it out of context. As a pastor, I'll never validate that because it's always wrong to use a passage in a wrong way. But God is pleased to enable us to misunderstand scriptures to get to the 
upright truth and trust in Christ. That's just God's grace. It doesn't have anything to do with correct exegesis. But that's always an interesting story to uh, run past everybody on uh, Romans 13, 14. Then we come to chapter 14. Chapter 14 is a chapter that is uh, very similar to the discussion that we find over in 1 Corinthians uh, 10 and 11 dealing with the issue of doubtful things. And here it has to do with weaker, uh, weaker brethren and how a more mature believer needs to think about a weak believer who thinks that they're still under, under legalism. And we'll come into that as we come to our last set of one another's. And this last set of one another's are prohibitions. And there are three prohibitions. Everything that we've seen up to this point uh, were positive commands to love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, care for one another, pray for one another, be kind to one another. All of these were positive. Now there are three negatives. And the first negative comes out of Romans 14, that we are not to judge one another. Romans 14:13. we are not to judge one another. Now the verse is up on the overhead, and it states, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, indicating that they had been uh, doing this along the way. That's brought out in the sense of the, of the negative command. The word that's translated judge is from the Greek verb krino, K-R-I-N-O, and it's used twice in the passage. It's used in the first line, let us not judge, krino, one another anymore, but rather krino, judge this. See, this is one of those cases where in English it, uh, there, there's this artificial rule in English that uh, if you're going to write good English and you're going to go to the University of whatever and go through their uh, world-class writing school, they will tell you that you don't use the same word over and over again within the same paragraph. There has to be word variation. The trouble is when it comes to translating the Scripture, when the Holy Spirit uses a word twice within five words of each other, it's for a reason and when you bring that over into English, you don't say, ah, good English means we have to translate it one way here and another way here. And that happens again and again and again in Scripture. And what it does is you lose the dots. Sometimes in Bible study, in, in a eight verses, the Holy Spirit will use one word four or five times. And in the Greek, it really stands out and you go, man, that's important. He's using that same word again and again and again. I need to connect those dots. And in English, they'll be translated with five different synonyms. And you don't see that there's a, you know, a group of similar words there that need to be understood so that you can tie the context together. And as a result, you, you miss out on some things. And that's what happens here in Romans 4.13. Paul says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this. He's offering an alternative. They're judging one way. He says, no, this is what you should do. So he's offering uh, an alternative, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now, let's look at the context. The context deals with the law of liberty that believers have the liberty in many areas, sometimes we call them gray areas. I don't think they're gray areas because to me gray implies that there's 
They're a little dirty already somehow. They're not quite white. You know, you didn't use the latest formula of Tide or Clorox or whatever to get them white, so they still, it's dingy. So that's not the idea. It's that there's some things that are right and some things that are wrong, and there's other areas that are just not addressed in the Scripture, and they're not wrong, but people may think they are. They, they may have been taught that it's wrong to do certain things. And how do you handle that? And that's a, always a, an interesting, interesting situation. I got a call related to this today from another pastor who's working through a passage and, uh, related to Paul in, in, uh, Acts when Paul takes his, uh, it goes back to, um, goes back to Jerusalem and he brings, uh, an, uh, he washes his hands in the temple ritual, cleanses his hands, and he brings offerings to the temple. And people say, some people will say, well, that was wrong. Paul is following the, Paul is following the Mosaic law here. Uh, that's wrong. In um, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, when I'm with the Jews, I'll act as a Jew. When I'm with those under the law, I'll act as if I'm under the law. When I'm with the those who are without the law, I will act as with I'm without the law. I will be all things to all people. That's what he means there uh, by, by that in context. I'll be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. In other words, if I'm in a Jew, what Paul is saying is I'm in a Jewish home and they have certain traditions, I'm not going to make an issue out of those traditions which would distract from the gospel. I don't want to make non-issues an issue. I don't want to get involved in arguments about things that, that are irrelevant to salvation. If I'm with, with a, a Gentile who has been influenced by the Judaizers, where they have come under the law and thinking that makes them more spiritual, then I'm not going to rub their face, rub their nose in something that just because I have the right to do it doesn't mean I'm going to assert my right to do it because it will offend them and it will create a distraction in communicating the gospel. And if I'm with those who have never had the law, in other words, Gentiles, where something is not an issue, then I'm going to live as if it's not an issue. Now, some people in our culture think that that's hypocrisy. Of course, these passages used to always be applied to issues like smoking, drinking, dancing, playing cards, things like that, which was very typical of much of conservative Christianity up through about the 1950s. I read an interesting study in a survey in, taken by Christianity Today around 1983. And they did a survey of, I don't know how many Christians now, but uh, they did a pretty broad survey. And the question they asked was, is it spiritually wrong? Does it violate your, your spiritual life to drink wine. In 1951, when I think they, when Christianity Today first came out, they had done a similar survey. And in, in, in 1951, about 95% of Christians said it was wrong to drink wine. In 1983, 95% said it wasn't. That is a, that's a huge shift. That is a 180-degree reversal. I don't know of anything else that would have seen such a shift in behavior. Part of that is because, of, I think, negatively, the influence of the cosmic system, because by 1983, a lot of Christians really didn't care what the Bible said. It was much more licentious 
liberal Christianity that that uh, was in in the United States, but also from the positive side, a lot more people had become acquainted with grace and had people had done a better job of teaching on the whole principle of drinking alcoholic beverages. The Bible doesn't prohibit it, just prohibits prohibits drunkenness. But the idea here when it's applied to, let's say, alcohol would be that if you're with somebody who has a weakness toward alcohol, someone who is prone to either uh, uh, an alcoholic or is prone that way, cannot handle uh, drinking, then when you go out to dinner with them, you don't sit down and say, I believe in grace, I'm going to order a beer, I'm going to order you one too. See, that's putting a stumbling block in front of them. As Dr. I used to love this. Dr. Ryrie said this. I heard him say it about a year before I went to seminary. He said, made the point. He said, to, have, to cause somebody to stumble means that they have to be moving. Think about it. You've got to be going somewhere in your spiritual life to stumble. And a lot of people who want to gripe and complain about legalistic issues, they're not going anywhere in their Christian life. They're mired in legalism, and they're stuck there. So you can't cause a legalist to stumble. Gary Friesen came out with a book in the early 80s that won a couple of Christian book awards called Decision-Making in the Will of God, which was one of the best books I've read on that whole topic of decision-making. And Gary Friesen in there... Uh, made the point that you, you, we can't you can't cause somebody to to stumble by simply performing an act somewhere in their vicinity. It's the idea if somebody's walking down a path, you have to put something in front of them that causes them to trip. If you lay the log down over there, it's not going to cause them to stumble because they're walking this path. So a, the application being. If you're out with your family and you're having a celebration, then you can have a glass of wine or you can enjoy whatever it is you wish to enjoy. But next week you may be out with some people you with whom you work and you know they come from a legalistic Christian background and they would be made uncomfortable if you ordered a glass of wine at lunch. And so out of love for the brethren, you don't assert your liberty there because you don't want to create a non-issue. Uh, whereas if you go over, uh, if you're out with your family, you can do it there. That's not hypocrisy. That's just using good judgment. And I have been out with uh, some pastors where we will go out to eat and we'll ha- enjoy a good beer or a good glass of wine with our meal. And I've been out with other pastors where they sit in the corner of a restaurant and they will order a Coke and Jack Daniels, and please put that in a coffee cup for me. And then I've been out with others that for, I would never, ever even even hint that I would or think about ordering a glass of uh, wine or a beer because they, it would take them from now until the rapture to get over it. And you have to just be, you have to realize that there are some, some battles you, you're never going to win, and some battles you are going to win, uh, since we're talking about booze. Um, it's interesting, Dallas Seminary did not have a, uh, uh, 
what, what you call it, did not have a behavior, code of conduct policy for students until Dr. Walbert came in. I don't know if it's true. Maybe somebody's listening out there in the world can find it. I've always heard the story. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the story's gone around Dallas Seminary for years that when J. Vernon McGee uh, on uh, Back to the Bible, no, it's not Back to the Bible. What's his? Through the Bible. J. Vernon McGee is still on Through the Bible. In fact, he has more people listening to him in more com- countries now than he did when he was alive. When the man died and went to heaven, he got the gift of tongues, and, and now you can hear him in Russian and Chinese. And, and I wonder if he still has that East Texas accent in Arabic. But anyhow, when McGee first went to seminary, he was from Waxahachie. That's where he gets his, that's where he gets his accent, although I know a few people from Waxahachie. They didn't talk like that either, but... Uh, when, when McGee first went to seminary, he went to Union Theological Seminary, the Presbyterian Seminary in Virginia, not the liberal one up in New York. And after the first year, he, they were into covenant theology and all this other stuff, and, he, and they were very legalistic, and he didn't appreciate that. So he'd heard about this new seminary in Dallas, Texas. This was either 31 or 32. might have been even, even earlier than that. Maybe that's when he graduated. But he decided to check it. I wanted to make sure they weren't legalistic. So he found the largest, blackest cigar he could find and lit it up and walked into Stearns Hall to the registrar to make sure that no one, uh, he didn't want anybody to react or he'd know he was in the wrong place. So that was his little test for, for Dallas Seminary. What's interesting, when Dr. Walver became president, he instigated a, a code of conduct policy that, if memory serves me, said something like, we do not think that Christian leaders should participate participate in alcoholic uh, beverages or tobacco products, and we expect students to uh, comply with this. Interesting way of wording that. And Dr. Honer, who recently went to be with the Lord, who was a fabulous Greek scholar and the head of the New Testament department there for many, many years, used to really give Dr. Walvoord a hard time in the faculty meetings because Dr. Walvoord, to the day he died, he taught that that wine that Jesus turned the water into was, was grape juice. It wasn't wine. No, I don't, you know, it didn't matter what anybody in the Old Testament department said or New Testament department said, what the word studies or history didn't matter. It was water. And, you know, this is always interesting. I mean, it, the water was turned into grape juice. It's always interesting to see how different things in our background, no matter how far we go in our Christian life, they still affect and, and affect our exegesis. Dr. Walvoord's mother was a temperance marcher. And she was out there marching for prohibition, you know, all the time that he was growing up. And so that was just embedded in him. And so there's no way you could sit down with Dr. Walvoord and ever think about ordering a glass of wine. Because you, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't recover yet, even though he's in heaven. So you always have to have that that. Uh, realization of where people are. And some people are weaker brethren in the sense that they have a belief or something that is weak. They're moving, though, and they're, gro- they're growing, but you don't want to upset that. Other people, and there's not, Paul talks about weaker brethren and stronger brethren. There's really a third category. This is what, what Thiessen brought in. The third category are the Pharisees. Paul didn't talk about 
the Pharisee type. The Pharisee type is a non-moving, non-growing uh, person who's got his feet set in spiritual concrete, and you're not going to by. He's the legalist who says it's wrong to do this, it's wrong to do that. All in, within the gray areas, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't dance, you can't play cards, you can't, you can't pick corn for any reason on the Sabbath. So what did Jesus do? He picked corn right in front of him on the Sabbath to feed his disciples. See, Jesus confronted the Pharisee. But he had grace towards the weaker brother. There's a, that's why there's a difference there. You, when you're dealing with a person who is set in arrogance and hostility, that, then it's sort of like not quite in your face but close to it. I'm going to have this glass of wine because I just want to see what it does to you because you're a legalist. It's not going to cause you to stumble. You've already stumbled. You're in arrogant self-righteousness. There's a difference. So keep that in mind as we sort of get the context here. In the law of liberty, Paul says, receive one who is weak in the faith. That is, one who just hasn't been taught enough yet. The faith refers to his doctrinal understanding. Receive one who is weak in the faith. This is talking about a believer. But not to disputes over doubtful things. Don't get involved in arguments over these things yet because they don't have the doctrinal background to understand it. For one who believes he, he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. In other words, the one who is, has some doctrine says, I can do this. It's, it's an area of freedom. There's nothing wrong with this. But the one who is coming out of a legalistic background uh, and where he's been taught certain things erroneously, we have to take that into account. It's not that he's he's the, a Pharisee, but he just need excuse me needs time to to mature. Uh, verse three: Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And the and notice the verbs here: Don't despise him, don't judge him. This is a use of the word judge in the sense of making a statement that is that ridicules, that uh, diminishes, that shows disrespect for someone that impugns them for being silly or stupid or they just don't know where you're putting them down. That's the context. When we come then to uh, verse 10, Paul says, Why do you judge your brother? See, what was happening is the mature believer was looking at the young believer, uh, the weak believer, and ridiculing him and condemning him for his fact that he didn't know any better. You should never run anybody down because they don't know any better. They just haven't had time to learn. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? That's the nuance of judge. But crino is a broad word. When you get up in the morning and you are looking in the refrigerator and you know that last week you bought some yogurt for breakfast and you need to eat that because you're trying to watch your weight, and so you open it up. You make sure you put your glasses on and look in there to make sure it's not growing hair yet. That is crino. It's evaluating. It's not judging. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. So crino has a broad context. You evaluate things. When you are at work and somebody is working for you and you're evaluating their performance, you're supposed to do that. When you're at a church, you are to evaluate the character of deacons, the pastor, 
Sunday school teachers. That's the same word, krino. We are to judge one another in those areas, use, understanding krino in the sense of evaluation and discernment. But if krino can also mean to condemn someone, to run them down, to treat them with uh, disrespect or to ridicule them, and, that, and to treat them contemptuously. And that's the idea here in this use. Let us not judge one another. Don't show contempt for the weaker brother, but rather uh, judge them in this way. Uh, make your evaluation in this way. Don't put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in your brother's way. If you know that he has a problem with something or he hasn't been well taught in an area, then don't create a an issue out of something that it should not be an issue. Then we look at James 4.11. James 4.11 is very similar context. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. That's the idea of the negative idea of judging or being, or, uh, condemning someone. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother, that is another believer, and judges his brother, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Now, the word law there, notice, and I think they're right in the English translation, it shouldn't be uppercase law, meaning mosaic law. It's lowercase law, meaning the, the absolute standards of God. That when you are start running down, judging other believers for what they're doing, that it, you're, you're also making a statement about the absolute standards of God where he has prohibited this, and so you are also condemning that law and saying, well, that really doesn't matter. So James concludes, but if you judge the law, what? You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You're not applying the law of God, meaning the standards of God is revealed in the Scriptures, but you are a judge. You are just condemning it. He makes the same kind of statement again in the passage we looked at last week, James 5, uh, in verse 9, he says, Don't grumble against one another, which is a present active imperative implying stop doing it. That It implies that they've been doing this uh, as they're going through the tests of faith. It says, Don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Every believer is going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. So we need to pay attention to how we apply the word on a day-to-day basis. So the first prohibition is that we are to judge one another in the body of Christ. We're not to run down other believers. Point number two, don't lie to one another. Be honest with one another. Don't lie. Very simple statement. The uh, Greek verb is... Uh, pseudomai, which is where we get our word pseudo, lie, the present middle imperative, second person plural, uh, simply means don't tell a falsehood, don't lie to one another. And the context is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because you have put off the old man with his deeds. The idea of putting off the old man with his deeds is positional truth. The old man is dead. We are a new creature in Christ. We still have a sin nature. Old man is not the sin nature. We put off the old man. That's all, that's all that we were as an unregenerate 
as an unregenerate human being, and we have positionally put on the new man, but we have to learn to live as a new creature in Christ. So Colossians chapter 3 is describing the characteristics, the character qualities of the believer who is walking, uh, walking by Christ, imitating Christ, uh, putting on Christ as he has received him. Uh, Colossians 2, 4, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's the foundation for this particular section. And then we come to uh, chapter 3, verse 9, where we begin to talk about uh, the, the thinking of the believer uh, Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden in Christ. In other words, you died to the old life, now we have to learn to live as a new creature in Christ. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. See, it's, it's, it's it, being, having materialism lust and covetousness is no different from worshiping Baal. It's all idolatry. Verse 6, because of, the things, the, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Notice the contrast between the way you were and the way you are now. But now you yourselves are to put off all of these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Notice it says we're to put those things off. Do not lie to one another, verse 9, since you put off the old man with his deeds. Same word, put off, apotithemi. But the opposite word is used in verse 12, therefore... As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So we have put on Christ positionally. We've put off the old man, but we have to put on these new character qualities, which come as a result of spiritual growth, walking by means of the Spirit, studying the Word of God, and applying it. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Verse 13, bearing with one another. We studied that verse already. And forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So this idea of not lying to one another is in the whole context of removing these sins that easily characterize us in the way we deal with people if we let our sin nature control. Anger, wrath, uh, hatred, all of these things. Then our third point, our third prohibition and last prohibition, do not render evil to one another. Do not do evil toward other believers. First Thessalonians 5.15. See that... Uh, See, see that you do not do evil. Uh, there's actually not a verb there. It is implied. Uh, see that there is not evil uh, to uh, anyone. 
but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And the word there translated good is a word uh, agathos, meaning good with a intrinsic good. And the idea there is you have to have a mental understanding of what that good is. Now, the trouble is when you live in a relative society, we each have some idea of what is good, but a lot of our ideas of what is good really isn't what's good for the other person. It's what's good for me. So they need to do what's good in terms of my relative standard for what's good. Now, as a believer, you have an absolute external standard of what good is in relationship to the righteousness of Christ. So true love is going to do what is best or right or good for the other person, but that good, the agathos good, is a good that is defined externally by Scripture, not what is good in terms of a self-serving uh, idea that may be present uh, in my thinking. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to treat you in love, and you need to do this because that's what I think the good thing is. But it, it, it really just is what they want them to do. It's fitting their agenda. So what we, as believers... You have an external understanding of what really is good for the other. It may not be good for you, but you know it's the right thing, and it is the good thing because it's related to the plan of God. And so that external objective idea of good is what controls the way you, uh, you relate to the other person. You're going to treat them in the right way no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much you don't want to do it, you're going to treat them in grace and kindness and love and forgiveness because that is the way Jesus Christ treated you. That is the way God treats each one of us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It doesn't have anything to do with our own agenda. And that's why the Christian life is an impossible life. You can't do that in the flesh. You can only do that if you're walking by the Spirit and the Spirit of God is using the Word of God to change you into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study this this evening and to go through this study the last few weeks where we've had a chance to really focus on the internal dynamics of the body of Christ to one another, how we are to demonstrate real biblical Christian love toward one another, not a love that is based on sentiment, not a love that is based on emotion, not a love that's based on uh, warm, fuzzy feelings, but a love that is based on that external absolute that was demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross, your love that was made manifest by the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross as our substitute. And, Father, may that pattern, may that model constantly be, be in front of us as we seek to deal with those who have uh, many different problems in life, many different challenges that we may, uh, and may be that they are very uh, hostile or aggressive toward us. But nevertheless, we have to deal with them in a very aggressive kind of love and kindness that it was demonstrated by you at the cross. And only God the Holy Spirit can produce that in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.